You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Morgan is the current president of the Central Eurasian Studies Society, CES, and author of the award-winning book, Under Solomon's Throne, Uzbek Visions and Renewal in Osh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, which examines how ethnic Uzbeks in the city of Osh, Kyrgyzstan, think about how political authority and post-Soviet transformations based on research using vernacular language and ethnographic fieldwork excuse me, urban social life from 1993 to 2011. And uh, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone, if you have questions during this presentation, please um, type them into a clarifying question, type it into the chat feature or um, raise your hand using the little person at the bottom of the screen and um, we will moderate your questions throughout this talk. Uh, thank you, Morgan. Okay, thank you so much, Sarah, Allison, Jennifer. Thank you for hosting me, and um, thank you all for joining. I, I I very much wanted to talk to you because you guys are special. Uh, you are people who are interested enough in this part of the world that you're devoting a summer to learn these languages, and and that that that's to me uh, a, a mark of dedication. And I want to get to know you, so that that's why I, I wanted to do this talk. Um, so I, I, um, uh, what, I, what I'm, what I'm going to speak to is I'm going to try to speak at a level that's, that's broad. I'm not assuming any particular disciplinary training, but I'm trying to uh, bring to bear all kinds of, of scholarly knowledge to understand the part of the world that we are interested in, Central Eurasia, uh, through this particular problem. So uh, Again, if, I, if there's anything that's not clear, I'd encourage you to just put it in the chat or raise your hand for, for clarification. Um, so I, I'm going to try to go through these slides relatively quickly because there's so much and I don't want to run out of time. But uh, essentially what I'm going to do is, is look at a big problem through a specific case. So this case concerns a certain Uzbek patron. I'll explain that. And But to think broadly about power, how power is exercised in the central Eurasian space. So actually, I want to begin the, the discussion with, with sort of the big picture and the end there in the end. So you guys know the, uh, the Eurasian continent that, that we are focused on. Um, and uh, part of what I like to think about is how uh, different, there are different views of this part of the world. And looking at them in, in different ways is kind of like putting on a pair of of rose-colored glasses. There are different ways of looking at it, and depending on the glasses you have, you get different views of the continent. And what I'm trying to, to suggest is that, uh, yes, yeah, so so you, you can look at, at, Bono can look at this part of the world with a, with a certain view through his colored glasses. But, but, but what I want to look at is, uh, can we talk about Eurasian patterns of power? Is there something distinctive or I'm not saying unique, but at least something that we can characterize the way power is exercised in this part of the world. Um, and, um, and 
what, what I want to do is, is to think about uh, not just the things like uh, uh, states and governments, but also power at every level of society, uh, looking at, at towns and cities and regions, power writ large. So yes, it, it overlaps with what political scientists are concerned about, but also co just concerned about how humans live in power and exercise power in all kinds of other sites other than governments. So it's, it's a broad understanding of power that I would work with today. So, and asking the question, who are, what kinds of actors are exercising this kind of power understood broadly? So the first place I want to take you to is actually a political scientist uh, and who is focused on, on the states. So Henry Hale, a political scientist at GW, uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C., came out with a book called Patronal Politics. And he's making an argument that, yeah, there is a, a Eurasian form of power that's distinctive in some way. So Eurasia, mainly he's looking at Russia and the former Soviet Union, a little bit of China and so forth. And, and so he's saying that there's a, there's a sort of discernible logic, quote unquote, to political systems. And if, if you go back in history, so, uh, whoops, I skipped to, uh, let me go back. Yeah, so he defines patronalism, that's the term he coined, as, the, as, as characterizing Eurasian formations of power. So it refers to, uh, don't, don't get caught up with the technical here, but essentially it's characterized by personalized exchange of concrete awards and punishments rather than abstract and personal principles. This is something that I spend a lot of time talking about with my students and I write about, which is there are different ways of understanding power and authority. You can think of it either as person-centered that's, that, that is uh, powers revolves around what, what the man, it's usually a man, in charge says and does, or it can, it can, it can be centered on principles, what some call rule of law, uh, frameworks of constitutions or courts and so forth. And um, every society is a mixture of both in reality. The question is where on that spectrum are you? So uh, Henry Hale's argument is that power in Eurasia tends to be more on the personal side of things. Uh, this, of course, is a, a debate right now in U.S. society concerning uh, the U.S. government right now. I won't go into that unless you want to go into Q&A. But again, that, that's to simply say that even the U.S., which likes to see itself as a rule of law society, uh, there are, um, say we say, patronal uh, aspects to, to even U.S. power. Um, so, but I want to focus, as I said, not so much on states, but on non-state actors. Why, why, why is that important? Who are these non-state actors and what are they up to? And, uh, and, and here's the interesting part, is how are some non-state actors able to perform functions that almost look like states? And, and this is what I'm, what I'm trying to claim is that this is what part of what makes Central Eurasia interesting as a place is that you've got all these other kinds of actors other than the, the governments, the stands, and uh, that these are, there are people operating at other levels who are doing really interesting things, interesting like performing state-like functions. The case I'm gonna walk us through will be one of those cases, but I'm, I'm gonna draw the bigger picture right now. I'm gonna quickly walk through some recent scholarship on the region that uh, sort of falls into what I'm talking about. So, uh, so they, they do things like build infrastructure, they provide political stability, security, 
Uh, they help grow local economies. Uh, they increase capital, like education. Uh, they offer social protection, so-called un for the unemployed, the widows, the pensioners. They fund media. They fund religious institutions. So those kinds of state-like functions non-state actors are doing. So here's an example. Um, uh, Regina Spector uh, came out in a really interesting book. She's a political scientist, actually, uh, concerning bazaars in Kyrgyzstan. And so she's looking at these places. And so, so you might be, you might know, uh, what's that? Uh, there's a uh, saying, in, I, I wasn't planning on saying this, but, but there's a saying in Uzbek that says, goes something like, Balalar yok bosa, no, no, how's it go? Balalar bar bosa, barzar. Balalar yok bosa, mazar. Which means if, if you have kids, it's like a bazaar. If there are no kids around in your family, it's like a graveyard. So the point being, uh, it's acknowledged even in Central Asian culture that bazaars are the, these chaotic places. Like it's like kids, you have 50 kids running around everywhere. Um, and certainly in, in Western imagination, they think about the Oriental bazaar as places that are just, just, just teeming with people and it's like totally chaotic and all that. So what, um, what Regine Spector is, is arguing is that no, bazaars are, are actually ordered places. But they're ordered not because there's a central authority imposing order, but rather the people involved in the bazaar themselves, the sellers, the, the various uh, people organizing the property of the bazaars, they themselves have, have organized, they organize themselves in order to uh, organize, uh, you know, who gets what and, and, and uh, organizing space, organizing uh, protection and so forth. And so what her argument essentially is that um, that uh, you can get you can get order, you can get uh, governance, if you want to use that word, uh, without the state, that, that people could do sort of their own governance. Here's another example. Uh, I saw Boteva, who, who I understand will be one of your speakers later in the series. Um, she talks about halal business associations, uh, that these are pious, these are business circles of of businessmen who see themselves as very religious, they're Muslim, and uh, they want uh, to certify that their businesses, their food, and but beyond food quality, but their honesty, the way they use money, the way they treat their employees as halal, as, as that's the Islamic term for permissible. And uh, there's an there's a international certification for this, an actual body that certifies, but it's not the state. It's not the, the Kyrgyzstani government, for example, or Kazakhstan. It's, it's, there's an international body, but they operate locally. And so uh, this is another example of how uh, different non-state actors are organizing what they do, in this case concerning uh, good, uh, pious business practices. Um, let me click. Um, here's a more controversial example of non-state uh, forms of power. You might be uh, acquainted with what happened in Uzbekistan, in Andijan in 2005. Uh, I won't go into the details, but uh, something horrible happened there, which many people outside of Uzbekistan call a massacre. Uh, hundreds of, uh, of protesters in Andijan Square were killed by the by uh, Uzbekistan's government, and um, and 
uh, the circumstances, again, very complex. I, I don't want to go to it right now, but uh, the instigator of that that the government blames are the so-called Akramis, which the, the Uzbekistani government at the time blamed to be a fundamentalist uh, terrorist Islamist group that was aiming to, for forcible takeover of Uzbekistan. Um, force, uh, sources on the ground paint a more nuanced picture that they were a circle of business people, businessmen, who uh, uh, who were helping each other. They pooled capital, they shared resources, they shared knowledge, they trained workers that they shared, they took care of widows, they took care of the unemployed. They, they were, in a sense, um, acting in certain ways like a mini-state. And the argument of some scholars is that the reason why they were threatening to the Uzbekistani government wasn't because they were planning an armed takeover of Uzbekistan, but rather they were performing functions that the Uzbekistani government should have been doing but weren't doing adequately. It look, made the government look bad. So uh, that, that was why they were threatening. So that perhaps we can talk about that's a sort of controversial case. But my, my argument is that the so-called Akramis, this circle of businessmen in, in Andijan, they, they were a non-state formation of power. Uh, Uyghur cultural associations and business association in Almaty, some of you may be familiar with that, or the work of Sean Roberts, uh, that these are, they're, a lot of them based in Almaty, but they've, they've got, of course, transnational connections globally. Uh, they, they are uh, a force to reckon with and uh, concerning their organization, uh, uh, trading information, so forth, especially with what's going on in Xinjiang these days. And so they're, again, just I'm simply setting them as an example of a non-state formation of power. Uh, a very interesting book by Aksana Ismail Bekova uh, concerning uh, a revitalized ex-collective farm that was made into a, into a successful business enterprise by one man who, called Rahim, who became a powerful local patron uh, in the 2000s in rural Kyrgyzstan. So, so if you look at, if you read this account, essentially this one man became the most important person for, for that, that rural town, that region. He began building, funding local mosques. He began becoming the big man through which every, all important business became had to go through, and so this book traces how that happened, how he became that that local patron. So uh, patronage, uh, local big men are indeed part of the picture of Eurasian formations of power that are not the state. A good example of that. Uh, oh, okay. Um, let me see. Let, yeah. So uh, so what's going on here? I I, I thought I had a different slide. Um, Non-state local formations of power. Uh, so what allows them to operate economically? Let me make sure I didn't skip a slide. One second. I guess I didn't. Okay, never mind. Excuse me. Um, so let's make some sense of this. Uh, what allows them to operate, the, these local formations of power, non-state? Uh, so uh, one thing that seems to characterize a lot of these, these examples is that there's a, there's a local patron, there's a central guy, it's usually a man, who becomes very, very influential, who is respected by a lot of the community, who, ha who wields uh, economic resources, who holds a lot of social sway, and then is able to translate some of that into political power at the local level. Um, and 
pronouns are he, him, his, because it's usually a man. I, I don't know of any examples of women. If, if any of you know that, that would be interesting to, to study. Uh, and that person has appealing personal characteristics. And when people talk about him, it's, they, they talk about uh, his uh, uh, intelligence, his courage, his, uh, even maybe his ruthlessness, his, his ruthless business uh, sense, or business things like that, that, that kind of, of talk. Um, and a shout out to myself, uh, I, I uh, talk about this kind of what I call political imaginary, this way of imagining effective political authority, and this, 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 this idea of a, a strong, decisive, wise uh, authority figure that I call a Han figure, K-H-A-N, Han, meaning a, a, a figure who's uh, essentially a, a benevolent despot. And such figures were admired by some of the, the Uzbeks in Ash. And, uh, oh yes, here, so here's the slide I was looking for. So uh, a good example of this is a film that came out a few years ago, uh, set in rural Kyrgyzstan called The Light Thief, Siet Aka in, in Kyrgyz. And um, it's, um, it's an example of, again, about this local man who became very, very powerful. And so the film shows how when this man came on the scenes, this, this sort of sleepy little village then became transformed. And some of it was good, but some of it was very sinister. So this film was sort of showing the complexities, the good and bad as aspects when a local man ascends to become kind of a local patron, a local power, what that means. And, and this is this, this, this uh, electrician gets caught up in, 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 in the power, local power struggle. I, I highly recommend that film, by the way. Um, so uh, so what, what else characterizes these non-state formations? Uh, a small circle associates, like this called chromies, that there used to be, it's not just the, the, the powerful man, but he has a network around him. Uh, and he mobilizes local constituencies as, a loyal, as loyal con, uh, clients or as his electorate. And uh, often that such figures has or develops personal ties to high levels in government, which gives him political cover, allows him to get resources and so forth, to work in his local level. And question mark, uh, do they have arrangements with organized crime? This, I have no direct evidence in my own work, but this is a question, not, not a statement. Um, interesting, another shout out to a, a recent study by Erica Marat uh, concerning uh, politics of police reform. One of her case studies is in Kyrgyzstan. So asking the question of, of so-called question of corruption, uh, what is corruption and, and uh, how does one, um, how does one uh, change a, a, a police system? Uh, I mean, hey, I don't have to tell you, this is a question that's facing the United States right now. So this is, this is a very universal question, but, uh, but specifically in, in the Central Eurasian context when uh, the authority of police is so tied with their, their local authority with the community. Uh, what does it mean to reform police towards a more rural governed uh, model? So um, some interesting questions more broadly. Um, and what is the role of Islamic piety in all this? That there's a, there's a religiosity somehow works into these non-state Formation. So the, the case of Uzbekistan, the so-called Akramis, these were businessmen who were pious. They, 
they believed in serving the community for religious reasons. They, they thought being good Muslims means that they will provide services to the community. That social justice, in other words, is part of being a good Muslim. So that, there's, a, there's that component to this as well. So I'm, I'm just simply throwing out these are different components that, that need to be considered in any particular case. And uh, the role of universal, universalistic appeals, the rhetoric of the common good, of transcending ethnicity. This is something that I will emphasize in the case study I'm about to walk into right now, that this is a part of the basis of power uh, for these, these local patrons, that they claim that it's not just about me, it's not just about them exercising power in, in, this, in this locality, but rather they're saying, I'm doing this for the good of the whole community, maybe the entire society, maybe the entire republic. So, uh, so I, I guess all, all of this so far, this review is, is, is saying is that, that if you put together all this really cool recent scholarship about Central Eurasia, maybe what, what it tells us is that we should think about non-state nations of power together sort of comparatively begin thinking about what this means about uh, the way life works, how, how, how society works, how, how, how relationships work in, in this part of the world. That, in other words, we should get away from thinking about only about those governments. Because one thing, about, if you've done any reading about this region, is the focus is always on the governments, the stands. Uh, what is Kyrgyzstan doing? What's Kajikistan doing? And if you look at any, any survey of a lot of these topical surveys about what's going on, they do it by country. Okay, in Uzbekistan this is happening, in Turkmenistan this is happening. What I'm suggesting is maybe we should get away from that way of looking at the region and look at what's happening on the ground, trends on the ground that span all these different stands, all these different republics. And so, um, it's to take a different kind of view. So, so yes, of course, um, uh, governments are important. The state is important, but they're not the only game in town. So if, they, if you want one big takeaway of today's talk, that's it. The state is not the only game in town. There are important non-state actors on the ground. So, uh, well, here's a fancy word, ontology. In other words, that, um, that I'm suggesting a, a different view of what exists out there politically. If so there are other significant actors and regions, other ways of thinking about agency, of, of the difference in the society. It's not just the government. And, and not just, by the way, not just non-governmental organizations. So usually thinking about governments, NGOs, and their story. But, but it's a much more various, much more variety to the, to the picture out there. So um, yeah, so that, that, that's, that's really the message there. So, uh, in particular, I, my interest is looking at elites. In other words, the, the rich and powerful people, and particularly their ability to make the weather. In other words, their ability to change the fundamental structures of society. So what, what can the most uh, influential and resourced members of a society, what can they do to change the basic uh, states of affairs in, in society. That, that's what I want to look at. So how, what are their capacities to create and shape social relations, social ontologies? Who are, in other words, what exists out there? What are the players? Social imaginers, how people imagine what's politically possible. Um, 
their expectations that they're about about states of affairs. And that that would include things like elections and parties and so forth. But again, I'm I'm expect, as an anthropologist, my view of politics is broader than than just parties and elections and states. And so I'm just again opening up the space for our generation. And one tool I use is, is from a, a historian and anthropologist named Eric Wolf, where he, he argues about this, this notion of what he calls structural power, which is power that not just operates within settings, not, it's not just power to make people do things, but that actually changes, that organizes, or, orchestrates the settings themselves. So uh, that structures the political economy. So. So what I'm interested in is, is that kind of power, the power to change the very basic rules of the game in society. Can elites do that? That's, that's the question I'm working with. So yeah, the capacity to set the basic conditions of social life, society shaping projects. So uh, how do you do this? How, how, how do you go about doing this? So this is what this, the case step through with uh, we'll talk about. So the case I'm about to present to you is about a patron, this, some, some top dog, this big man who built a suite of urban institutions, suite meaning an organized um, set that worked together of institutions. Institutions like, wait, let me that, uh, and, and who, um, who uh, and because he did that, a discriminated community flourished under adverse circumstances. So it's more than he built a lot of stuff, uh, but that because he built a lot of stuff, he changed the political map in, in a locality. So, so this is what he built. He built a university, a newspaper, a press, a medical clinic, a school, cultural centers, shops, mosques, tourist centers, uh, all kinds of stuff, a whole suite of stuff. And here's this guy. His name is his name is uh, Kadirjan Batirov, Uzbek man. And he worked in Jalalabad, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Jalalabad, uh, the Russian or Uzbek spelling, Jalalabad, the Kyrgyz spelling. Just some views of this. Uh, maybe some of you've been there or intend to 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 go there. Uh, a view from the region. Of, it's in southern Kyrgyzstan in Svergali. Um, a little blow up of the the common CIA map of the region. I'm having problems clicking this. Uh, am I at the end of this slideshow? Uh, Should have ten more slides, but I will. I can okay. try. Do you want it to move to the next slide? Yes, I think seem to be stuck. Is that correct? I don't. I'm still. I'm on. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I must have delayed. Yeah. I went 46 right now. Uh, uh, yeah. Let me let me go back to 46 if I can. It may just be taking a moment. Yeah. Um, it might be just delayed. Okay. I'll, I'll just be patient. Okay. I, I'm looking at 47 at the moment, but um. Yeah, but anyway, whether you're in 46 or 47, yeah, this is just a blow up of where Jalalabad is located. Fergana Valley, uh, the most densely populated uh, part of the entire former Soviet Union, actually, that's now divided between Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and, 
and Uzbekistan. So yeah, whether you're in 47 or 46 doesn't matter. You, it, it's, it's both the Fergana Valley and shows where Jalalabad is, which is in Kyrgyzstan, close to the Uzbekistani border. Uh, but, but as you know, uh, Kyrgyzstan is mostly the, uh, I think you can see my moving arrow here. Kyrgyzstan is mostly the mountainous areas here and the flat area is mostly Uzbekistan. But um, let me advance here. Uh, Kyrgyz, as you might know, are post nomads, meaning um, they are descendants of pastorals who uh, didn't have fixed uh, dwellings, mostly uh, up until they were sedentarized by the Soviets in the 1920s, 30s. Um, and so this is, these are modern yurts, uh, modern uh, places. Uh, and and these, this is a pastoralist who, who uh, lived in a yurt and, and engaged in pastoralism as a part-time job in, in the summer. So he has a residence in the uh, in, in in the town. But anyway, so th I, I, these are these are these are uh, pictures of today, but just evoking what 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 nomadism might have looked like in the past. But so you probably know, uh, yeah. This is this yurt is just a. Uh, it's a ceremonial one. It was part of a wedding in the town that I passed through at one point. So it's not a, not a real yurt where people lived, but uh, just to evoke it. Whereas Uzbeks or the sedentary population, they were they're, they're descendants of a population that, that lived in oasis towns for, for centuries. And here's a view of Osh from from uh, from uh, from the central mountain there. And uh, so uh, you might be. Did I just skip two slides? Let me just. No, I didn't. Okay, so you might be familiar with the so-called Osh riots in 1990. That was a, I won't go into it right now, but a ethnic conflict between Kyrgyz and Uzbeks, the dominant ethnic groups in Osh that started in this very field marked by this monument and it's been written about and, and so forth. But, um, but, uh, but, but my, my point here is mostly, oh boy, is mostly that uh, to, to, uh, to talk about uh, that what Uzbeks were doing in cities that actually where they were the majority of in the Kyrgyz Republic. So Ash and Jalalabad are the two largest cities in Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyz Republic, same thing, uh, that in the south, and which are both Uzbek majority cities. And so in Jalalabad, um, that the, the, uh, the, the community became organized under that patron guy, Karajan Batirov, who built uh, the Friendship of People's University. And uh, this, these are some views of it uh, during my field work there up until 2009. So uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a magnificent complex. Actually, I, let, let me read to you some of my description of that, of that uh, place. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to do a little reading here. So it was built to impress. The Friendship of the People's University stood as perhaps the showiest landmark in Jalalabad during Kyrgyzstan's second decade of independence during the 2000s. Founded in 1999 along uh, the city's axial road, the main road, which is still called Lenin Street, by the way. Uh, it, was, uh, it was magnificent. It, it, was, it was built very quickly with high quality materials. The grounds were kept immaculate. Um, and uh, there are, you know, college students, school children. And so, so on this ground, so we're looking at the, the, the university, 
but on the same grounds, there, there was all the other parts of his urban suite of institutions. There was a school, there's a medical clinic, there's the, the press and newspaper, all these different things were, were together on this ensemble, this campus that Kader John Batira built during the 1990s and during the 2000s. And, uh, and it attracted all kinds of businesses and all kinds of business activities. People, uh, Uzbeks from the surrounding rural areas were streaming to it every day. The, the grounds right in front of the, 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 uh, the university had these taxis that were taking you to, to major rural areas that were Uzbek majority, uh, former collective farms, state farms. And uh, women were dressed often in modest Islamic dress on it. It was a very distinctive place in Jalalabad, very different town center, which really were dominated by ethnic Kyrgyz. So this was a very much an, an Uzbek space uh, that, that, was, that was being constructed. And all was, was headed ultimately by the grand patron of the complex, Karajan Batirov. So I think I probably should probably advance this. Yeah, so some more views of the place. I, these are unfortunately mostly in the winter that I took these pictures. Uh, yeah, so this was the editor of the press and all kinds of, uh, it employed lots of people, mostly Uzbeks, but not only Uzbeks. Uh, on the grounds, uh, Kader John Batirov again. Uh, so he uh, he sort of oversaw the things. Uh, so either Sarah or Allison, go ahead and change up the, the next set of slides as I keep talking. Um, so uh, so these are uh, th these included uh, yeah the elementary school newspaper, uh, a huge. Uh, it's performance hall, and the language. There's a Uzbek language press on the grounds that that uh, printed the only independent uh, Uzbek newspaper in Kyrgyzstan at the time. It was called Didor, and they hold all kinds of commemoration events of all kinds. Not just it was not. It was more than just the university. The university auditoria were, were hosted all kinds of cultural events, Uzbek music, dance performances. Uh, they had all kinds of political rallies. I could talk about politics as well. Um, so um, as an anthropologist, I'm looking at this, I'm saying, okay, these are institutions with official functions. There's a press, there's a you know, kindergarten, there's a school, there's, there's a university. But what was actually going on was a lot more extensive and much more interlaced than just the formal functions of, the, of these institutions. It was essentially an Uzbek community mini city. It was a garadok or shaharcha, if you know the Uzbek word. These are like mini cities. And uh, and that that they were uh, they function their function went beyond just what they were officially there for. So my question was was okay, what's going on here? What was Kadrajan up to? And uh, what kind of insight does this give about the abilities of of an elite figure like Karajan Batirov to exercise structural power. In other words, to change the very conditions of this entire city of Jalalabad. So how do we make sense of this? So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, the first thing I have to, have to note is that he was a shrewd businessman. Before he constructed these, the, the, this complex that you saw, uh, he was he, he was doing he was he had lots of hustles as it were he was he was running various bars in Jalalabad he he, he ran various uh, businesses that he built a lot of wealth during the 1990s before he mounted this this huge very showy 
of this, this complex that you just saw. Um, so, but what I would say is that he was more than just a economic entrepreneur, he was a political entrepreneur. And by that I meant that you had to be very savvy in a political way to succeed in Kyrgyzstan. Okay, but here, because, he, because of the situation. So here's a quick uh, uh, run through of, of the political situations that ethnic Uzbeks face in Kyrgyzstan. So Kyrgyz, as, as you probably know about your knowledge of the way Soviet nationalities work, you've got these 15 republics in, in the former Soviet Union, these different, in Central Asia, all these stands, and they're named after a ethnic group, Kyrgyzstan after Kyrgyz. They're the titular nationals. The, 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 uh, the, there's this, this so-called dominant ethnic group there. But of course, there are all kinds of so-called minorities living there, Uzbeks being a, you know, 20% of Kyrgyzstan. And they're the, actually the majority of cities like Jalalabad. Um, so the political power resides in Kyrgyz, especially after independence, when Kyrgyzstan is a sovereign nation state. Um, but the, a lot of the, the economic power still laid in, in among the Uzbeks. So there's a tension here. And some of that tension played out in the Osh, Osh riots in 1990. They played again in, in the huge conflicts in 2010 that actually happened after uh, the pictures you see. And the pictures are here, are 2006 through 2009. And, uh, but that, that, that's another issue that I'll get to later. But the point is that there's tension between these ethnic groups. And so uh, if someone wants to do some big things for the Uzbek community in Kyrgyzstan, there's a political problem. What's the political problem? Anytime an Uzbek person begins to mount a major enterprise, a business, a cultural center, even a political party in Kyrgyzstan, he faces a huge problem in that the Kyrgyz who are in power will look at this with suspicion because any organized Uzbek uh, effort in Kyrgyzstan is seen as potentially seditious. There, there's always a suspicion. Those Uzbeks, they're trying to, they're trying to secede from Kyrgyzstan. They're not happy with us. They want to join neighboring Uzbekistan. Because remember, Uzbekistan is just, I think, 20, 30 kilometers away, the border is, from Jalalabad. It's just uh, two kilometers away from Osh. And so, um, and so Kyrgyz are, are always looking askance at Uzbek efforts to organize themselves. So how in the world did Katarjan Baturov get away with this? This building, this entire showy complex that I just described. And, and let, let, let me, before I answer that question, let me just get, go through a few slides. Here's a picture of a school corridor in, in his complex. Let me see if I can get through some of these slides now. Uh, so this, this is the, the, the board here shows all, all the great accomplishments that Kadrajan Batirov did. His, his life is dedicated to the, the people, it says here. And, um, and, and these are pictures of some of the, of the students at his university and some of the offices, some of the classrooms. And uh, the, the, the newspapers, these are some of the newspapers, the editors of the newspapers uh, uh, that, 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 the, uh, of that. And uh, uh, Karajan Batirov also funded the refurbishing of mosques. This is the major Friday mosque, the major um, 
mosque where people congregate in large numbers Friday for the Friday noon prayer. It's still under construction. You see people literally praying outdoors because it's not finished yet. But um, but to the tune, I think $2 million, uh, U.S. dollars, I was quoted that Khadr John Batirov was putting into doing this. This is part of his quote unquote community service. And uh, during Korban Haidt, a major Islamic holiday, uh, uh, just outside of, of Jalalabad, th th these were some of the major, I mean, thousands, uh, uh, up to a thousand people were, were gathered in, in prayer. So, uh, so, uh, so before I answer the question of, of how he was able to pull this off, the question is, is, is that, uh, why is he doing all this stuff? Uh, isn't this all just self-promotion uh, that, that he's doing all this? It's for, for, for his wealth. Obviously, he's making a lot of money out of all these businesses. And uh, he's, he's gaining a lot of political capital. He ran for member of, he was a member of parliament in Kyrgyzstan's parliament for a while. He had political ambitions. Everyone knew that. It was not, it was not a secret. So um, it was part of his charm offensive. He was... Benefiting the community, he says, as, as a way of ingratiating himself to his, his, his Uzbek constituencies. For the most part, Uzbeks spoke of him in very glowing terms that, you know, I, I have a job because of Karajan Batira. My, my kids are going to school because of Karajan Batira. The local economy is reviving because of Karajan Batira. He's giving us pride as Uzbeks because of Karajan Batira. A lot of that kind of talk I heard from just interviewing all kinds of people in the city and in the rural areas around. Um, and, and people talked about that, what makes a good wealthy person? It's not just that, that, that he's wealthy, but he shares his wealth for the, for the benefit of the community. There's a lot of talk of that kind. And uh, that, that also, as I said, that, that they're, they're, they're seen as strong, they're ruthless in a certain way, and generous at the same time. So there's, here's a cultural note here is that there's something about the figure of the benefactor that's culturally resonant among Uzbeks, that they're not only generous, but they're also somehow ruthless at the same time. That, yeah, he's someone who's really a ruthless, you know, knows how to make money, but he's got a generous heart at the same time. That, that, that juxtaposition somehow is very compelling in, in the imaginaries of Uzbeks. And uh, this is a, a the principle from philosophy or, or law that some of you might be familiar with, the pr difference principle. A uh, political theorist, American political theorist named John Rawls talked about what makes, wh when are inequalities in any society justified? That, again, this is a, a, a very acute problem for the United States when we ask, you know, why should we allow there to be great inequalities between the rich and poor? Well, John Rawls says they are justified in as much as those differences benefit the least advantaged in society. In other words, if that people will tolerate inequalities in wealth, if somehow that arrangement somehow elevates those who are most, most disadvantaged. So that would mean, for example, unemployment insurance or, uh, or uh, aid to the poor in some, some way. So uh, we're, we're going through this right now, of course, with the COVID um, thing. And so, uh, so what I'm suggesting is that Uzbeks have a kind of difference principle acting. They're saying, yes, we can tolerate a man like Karajan Batyarov being wildly more wealthy than we are, as long as he's benefiting the society. So um, 
that that they're they're speaking in, in very admiring tones because of that. But Karajan Batirov's uh, charm offensive was also to the Kyrgyz as well. And here's the part I'm going to pick up on how he's able to get away with all this. So it's to his Kyrgyz neighbors and to the Kyrgyzstani state that he's doing all of this. So, um, so what he what he's essentially saying is that I'm I'm building all of this. It's not just for Uzbeks. I'm not doing this just for the benefit of Uzbeks. And I'm certainly not doing this to mount some kind of conspiracy against Kyrgyzstani society or the state. In fact, I'm doing this for the benefit of all Kyrgyzstani citizens, Russians, Ukrainians, Koreans, Germans, Tatars, and Kyrgyz as well. So if you look at, before the, the university had a website, if you look at their propaganda, their, their literature, they constantly emphasize that this is for the benefit of, of all of Kyrgyzstan, in fact, all of the region. They like to boast that we have students coming in from Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Pakistan, all these places, to my university that he, by the way, calls the Friendship of Peoples University. And if any of you have any, you know anything about Soviet history, you know that phrase, Druzhba Narodov, the Friendship of Peoples, you know what that means. That, that this was this was a, a, a thing in in Soviet in policy. It was it was a um, this I, the, the the quick study is that it was it was Soviet affirmative action in, in American terms. It was um, this idea that that all the, the the peoples of these former Soviet Union were were together in in this common project of building socialism, and so that means ethnicity doesn't matter. In, in a certain way in, in the Soviet imaginary. So what Karajan Batyarov, by naming his university the Friendship of People's University, he was playing directly to that trope. He's saying, you remember that Soviet ideal we had that ethnicity doesn't matter, it's just your humanity that matters? Well, that's what motivates my business endeavors, that this is for all the peoples. This is for the harmony and the friendship of peoples. So in a sense, he's using Soviet propaganda, he's reappropriating it and, and saying and, and, and using it for a post-Soviet context when there's all these nationalisms that are so uh, strident. So uh, for example, he uses Russian as, as the medium of, of, of teaching. I, I can tell you stories about how well that actually went. I'm attending various seminars and classes uh, even though everything's supposed to be happening in Russian, uh, the, the knowledge of Russian of this new generation of students actually is not so good. But, um, but he constantly uh, postures himself as a loyal Kyrgyzstani institution. For example, his, his newspaper constantly talked about, I mean, you read his newspaper, it's talking, it's, it's in Uzbek language, yes, but it says, we Kyrgyzstanis, our country Kyrgyzstan, our president, Oscar uh, uh, Bakiev, and so and so um, uh, uh, Bakiev, and so that time Bakiev was the president of Kyrgyzstan, and so he's made a bend over backwards to say we are Kyrgyzstanis, we Uzbek Uzbeks in Allahabad are Kyrgyzstanis, and so uh, uh, that was his way of saying we are good Uzbeks. We're not trying to rebel. We're not seditious. We're not trying to join Uzbekistan. So 
And that was very important for him to say that. However, this is sort of what I'm going to end on, that uh, it didn't really work out so well. Um, that some of you might know in 2010, uh, there was a horrible set of uh, events that uh, where essentially uh, Bands of Kyrgyz and bands of Uzbek went through different towns, uh, killing each other and and setting up neighborhoods on fire. Entire Uzbek neighborhoods, were almost a lot of it, were were uh, were torched, and people were targeted. Uh, the opposite of this, were, were killed. And specifically, and this is important, the institutions of Kadirjan Batirov, including his Friendship of People's Universities, were specifically targeted by by bands of Kyrgyz. Uh, who 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 pillaged his place, and um, what happened? I'll be mean, very briefly. It had to, had nothing to do with Karajan Batirov at first. You might know that in early 2010 there was a political crisis in Bishkek, in the capital of Kyrgyzstan, in the north of the country, over many mountains, and that crisis made its way to the south, to to places like Oshin and Jalalabad. And that, that did not initially have a, a, a ethnic character, but it then be quickly became ethnicized. And so Kadirjan Batirov uh, got caught up in it. And, and then quickly uh, the Kyrgyz of, of Southern Kyrgyzstan says, oh yeah, you're now showing your true colors. You are a seditious Uzbek man after all. And, and he got caught up in this. So I guess the tragedy of, of all this is that he spent 15, almost 20 years building trust, building this model of saying, we are loyal Kyrgyzstani citizens. We coexist peacefully with Kyrgyz. We're here for the benefit of all Kyrgyzstani citizens and, 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 and building things that have made a, a demonstrable economic difference to, to Southern Kyrgyzstan. And after all of that, all that literally went up in smoke, literally in smoke, as you see here, uh, in, within a few days. And, and that sort of showed, uh, the tragedy of that is sort of how the, the precarious situations Uzbeks and Kyrgyzstan maybe will always be uh, in. So despite the, the great efforts of a man like um, it, 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 it so quickly uh, uh, was caught up in inter-ethnic conflict. So let, let me kind of wrap up. So now stepping back a bit, say what, what are we learning from this case? So his institutions, what, what, what did they accomplish during those, those 10 years from about 1990, 1991 through 2010, the first two decades of independence of Kyrgyzstan? They enabled Uzbek communal flourishing under difficult economic and political context. Economically difficult because you might know the first few decades everywhere in central Eurasia was very difficult. Hyperinflation, unemployment, uh, just uh, entire institutions ripped apart. Politically difficult, as I explained, that the relationship between Kyrgyz and Uzbek very difficult. So how in the world do you enable their Uzbek flourishing when anything like that would be seen suspiciously by Giyas? Um So his answer, Kadirjan Batirov's answer, was to wrap this endeavor in an interpretive frame. He claimed it was serving the common good and that was loyal to the Kyrgyzstani state. And he, by the way, uh, cultivated personal links to uh, Kormanbek Bakiev, to the, pr the president of Kyrgyzstan, who, by the way, w was from Jalalabad. Uh, so uh, 
President Bakiyev was the big Kyrgyz man of Jalalabad. Kadirjan Batyarov was the big Uzbek man of Jalalabad. They weren't in, in a political alliance. And while I was there, uh, Bakiyev came to visit several times. It was a big event, and just to show that they're showing that you know we we two big men are friends. We, we can work together. So that that was part of uh, of um, Kadirjan Batyarov's political position there. And uh, so he was able to build social economic viability through institutionalized patronage. So all, all of these, these institutions were resources of patronage. Um, but but I, what I'm trying to step back and, and seeing here is that this is one example of a central Eurasian elite figure able to exercise structural power in the sense I mentioned before, meaning able to change, to make and change entire social political state of affairs. He changed the landscape of Jalalabad, this man did. So one man cast the city's social interdependencies, its economic capacities, he created jobs, he, he, he mobilized economic resources, he developed all kinds of expertise, uh, everything from, you know, from crafts, making stuff to artists, able to, to, to performers, he was able to, to, to patronize all that stuff. How did he do that? And so, so, so the bigger question is how in general can one person do so, so much? Uh, what are the conditions of possibility? What are the limitations of what a person can do, what human agency can do? This is, these are the bigger, broader questions that this raises. So what one immediate answer I would say, just looking at this case is that, think about what Dumbrater had to do in order to, to pull what he was able to pull off for two decades, which is he had to work on both a political economy. In other words, the, the economics has to work. The business model has to work. And the politics has to work. So that's the political economy. And the discourse, namely how people interpret this. How do people see it? If, this, if people saw this as something potentially vicious or threatening, it would never have worked, no matter what the economics of it. So you need both the political economy and the disc discursive aspects to work in this. And the way he got the discourse to work to say, friendship for peoples, it's all about uh, inter-ethnic harmony, it's about the common good, and that, that's how he wrapped um, his endeavors with that discourse. So uh, he needed both to work. And that was amazing. I, I, I would say, even though it crashed and burned in 2010, it was amazing what he was able to pull off for, for two decades. And, but yet, it also shows the vulnerabilities of this, of this model that it depended on personal ties. It depended on this one person. And uh, it did not, even though he was building institutions, the institutions were not strong. They were too tied to that one person. And this takes us back to what I was opening up in the beginning. I was saying that, that you can look at forms of power in the world as some being more person-centered and some being more uh, principle-centered or rule of law-centered, institution-centered. And, um, and you can see there's, there's an inherent instability of a person-centered model here. So, uh, but yet, let's bef before we criticize him, say, yeah, he was able to remake reality, the, the, the social political reality of Jalalabad for two decades. That's amazing. So quickly, some, some lessons. Uh, I'm thinking just more abstractly, the conjunctures of culture and power that, that, that he, he had to mobilize culture in order to, 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 to do this. Cult, culture was part of his exercise of power. 
get it uh, to mobilize material things like uh, moving goods and, and bizarre goods and money flows and loans and expertise as much as mobilizing uh, understandings like friendship of peoples. So all of that was coming into play. He had to mobilize social inter interdependencies, how people depended on each other, their opera operations and how they, how they changed. So I, I, I'm getting a little theoretical here, but you don't have to, 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 to buy into all of this. But um, I'm just saying that, that this is, this is um, these are some of the, of the complex of labor you have to do if you're if you're a rich and famous person who wants to pull off and change the the, the local landscape of a place, so that, this is a, this is not easy to do. But essentially, I, that, that's, that's so 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 that's essentially what I'm going to leave with you. That here's an example of a non-state formation of power. This is a local patient who's able to do something amazing, but it had a limitation. It came to a crashing, tragic uh, end in 2010. And nothing like this seems possible for the near future in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, but uh, that's another question about the future of, uh, of Kyrgyzstan. But um, anyway, um, let me stop and let me take questions. I'd love to 